0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Okay, let's go. I'm Mike Dix, and this is me reading Wikipedia. What? All of it? Today's random Wikipedia article is entitled, The Great Molasses Flood. Let's see what that's about, shall we? The Great Molasses Flood, also known as the Boston Molasses Disaster, the Boston Molassica. Somebody took the time to call this the Boston Molassica. Kudos. Occurred on January the 15th, 1919 in the North End neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. A large storage tank filled with 2.3 million gallons, weighing approximately 13,000 short tons, of molasses burst, and the resultant wave of molasses rushed through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour, killing 21 people and injuring 150. The event entered local folklore, and residents claimed for decades afterwards that the area still smelled of molasses on hot summer days. I used to live in a town called Peterborough, and uh, we had a um, pet food factory, and in the summer, when the wind blew in a certain direction towards my school playing field, um, the entire school smelled of dog food. I think molasses might have been an improvement on that. The disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Company facility at 529 Commercial Street near Keeney Square. Molasses can be fermented to produce ethanol, the active ingredient in alcoholic beverages, and a key component in munitions. Who knew that, that you can make weapons with molasses? Far better on pancakes, I think. The Purity Company used the harbourside commercial street tank to offload molasses from ships and store it for later transfer to pipe by pipeline to the Purity ethanol plant, situated between Willow Street and Ever Way in Cambridge. The molasses tank stood fifty feet tall and ninety feet in diameter, and it contained as much as two point three million U.S. gallons of, of sugar. On January the fifteenth, nineteen nineteen, the temperature had risen above forty degrees, climbing rapidly from the frigid temperatures of the preceding days. And the previous day, a ship had delivered a fresh load of molasses, which was warmed to reduce its viscosity for transfer. Possibly due to the thermal expansion of the older cold molasses inside. The tank burst open and collapsed at approximately 12.30pm. Witnesses reported that they felt the ground shake and they heard a roar as it collapsed, a long rumble similar to the passing of of an elevated train. Others reported a tremendous crashing, a deep growling, a thunderclap-like bang and a sound like a machine gun as the rivets shot out of the tank. Molasses' density is about 1.4 tonnes per cubic metre, 40% more dense than water, so it had a great deal of potential energy. The collapse translated this energy into a wave of molasses 25 feet high at its peak. 25 feet high of sugar moving at 35 miles per hour. A 25 foot tall wave of sugar moving at 35 miles an hour through the streets of Boston. The wave was sufficient force to drive steel panels off the burst tank against the girders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway's Atlantic Avenue structure, and to tip a sidecar momentarily off the EI's track, the L's track. Stephen Puello describes how nearby buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two or three feet. Puello quotes a Boston Post report. Molasses, waist deep, covered the streets and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was an animal or a human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. The Boston Globe reported that people were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into the Boston Harbour. After the initial wave, the molasses became viscous, exacerbated by the cold temperatures, trapping those caught in the wave and making it even more difficult to rescue them. About 150 people were injured, and 21 people and several horses were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses, or by the debris that it carried within. The wounded included people, horses and dogs. Coughing fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast. Edwards Park wrote in one children's ex- of one child's experience in a 1983 article for the Smithsonian. Anthony Distasio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo school, was picked up by the wave and carried tumbling on its crest, almost as though he was surfing. Then he grounded, and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name, and he couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out. Then he opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. First to the scene were 116 cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket, a training ship of the Massachusetts Nautical School that was docked nearby at the playground pier. They ran several blocks towards the accident and entered into the knee-deep, sticky mess to pull out survivors, while others worked to keep the curious from getting in the way of the rescuers. The Boston Police, Red Cross, Army and Navy personnel soon arrived. Some nurses from the Red Cross dived into the molasses, while others tended to the injured, keeping them warm and feeding the exhausted workers. Many of these people worked through the night, and the injured were so numerous that doctors and surgeons set up makeshift hospitals nearby in a nearby building. Rescuers found it difficult to make their way through the syrup to help the victims, and four days elapsed before they stopped searching. Many of the dead were so glazed over in molasses that they were hard to recognise. Other victims were swept into the Boston Harbour and were found three or four months after the disaster. It's like um, Pompeii, isn't it? I imagine people entombed in... In uh, like brittle candy, and uh, and buried um, at the bottom of the Boston Harbor, only to be discovered months later. There may even still be victims down there. Cleanup crews used salt water from a fireboat to wash away the molasses and sand to absorb it, and the harbor was brown with molasses until summer. The cleanup in the immediate area took weeks, with several hundred people contributing to the effort and it took even longer to clean the rest of greater Boston and its suburbs. Rescue workers, cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets and spread it onto the subway platforms, onto the seats inside trains and streetcars, to pay telephone handsets, into their homes, and to countless other places. Everything that a Bostonian touched was sticky. And here's a list of the dead, which I think I'll read Patrick Breen, 44, a labourer. William Brogren, 61, a teamster. Bridget Clotherty, 65, a homemaker. Stephen Clofferty, 34, unemployed. John Callahan, 43, a paver. Maria Distasio, 10. William Duffy, 58, a labourer. Peter Francis, 64, a blacksmith. Blaminio Jalirinho. I probably said that wrong. Shall I try that one again? laminio Garani 37, a driver, Pasquale Iantosca, 10, James J. Kennelly, 48, Eric Lard, 17, George Leahy, 38, James Lennon, 64, Ralph Martin, 21, a driver, James McMullen, 46, a foreman, Caesar Niccolo, 32, an expressman, Thomas Noonan, 43, a longshoreman, Peter Shaughnessy, 18, a teamster, John M. Siebelich, 69, a blacksmith, Michael Sinnott, 78, a messenger. Several factors might have contributed to the disaster. The first factor is the belief that the tank may have leaked from the very first day that it was filled in the year 1915. The tank was also constructed poorly and tested insufficiently and carbon dioxide production might have raised the internal pressure due to the fermentation in the tank. Warmer weather the previous day would have assisted in building this pressure as the air temperature rose from 2 degrees to 41 over that period. The failure occurred from a manhole cover near the base of the tank and a fatigue crack there possibly grew to the point of criticality. The tank had been filled to capacity only eight times since it was built a few years previously, putting the walls under an intermittent cyclical load. Several authors say that the Purity Distilling Company was trying to outrace Prohibition as the 18th Amendment, which is the amendment to introduce the banning of alcohol, was ratified the next day, and it took effect one year later. An inquiry after the disaster revealed that Arthur Gell, USIA's treasurer, neglected basic safety tests while overseeing construction of the tank, such as filling it with water, insufficient to check for leaks, and ignored warning signs such as groaning noises each time the tank was filled, which would have been quite a clue I think. He had no architectural or engineering experience. When filled with molasses, the tank leaked so badly that it was painted brown to hide the leakage. Local residents collected leaked molasses for their homes. A 2014 investigation applied modern engineering analysis and found that the steel was half as thick as it should have been for a tank its size, even with the lax standards of the day, and it also lacked manganese and was made more brittle as a result. The tank's rivets were also apparently flawed and cracks first formed at the rivet holes. In 2016, A team of scientists and students from Harvard University conducted extensive studies of the disaster, gathering data from many sources including 1919 newspaper articles, old maps and weather reports. The student researchers also studied the behaviour of cold corn syrup, flooding a scale model of the affected neighbourhood. What a gig! I would love to do that, building a model of Boston and then flooding it with corn syrup. Brilliant. The researchers concluded that the reports of the high-speed flood were credible. Two days before the disaster, warmer molasses had been added to the tank, reducing the viscosity of the fluid. When the tank collapsed, the fluid cooled quickly as it spread until it reached Boston's winter evening temperatures and the viscosity increased dramatically. The Harvard study concluded that the molasses cooled and thickened quickly as it rushed through the streets, hampering efforts to free victims before they suffocated. The United States Industrial Alcohol Company did not rebuild the tank. The property, formerly occupied by the Molasses Tank and the North End Paving Company, became a yard for the Boston Elevated Railway. It is now the site of a city-owned recreational complex officially named Langon Park. It should totally be renamed Molassica Park. It features a little league baseball field, a playground and bocker courts. Immediately to the east is the larger... Pua, uh, Puapolo Park, with additional recreational facilities. A small plaque at the entrance to Puapolo Park, placed by the Bostonian Society, can, commemorates the disaster. The plaque, titled Boston Molasses Flood, reads as follows. On January fifteenth, 1919, a molasses tank at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure, killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses buckled the elevated railway tracks crushed buildings and inundated the neighbourhood. Structural defects in the tank combined with unseasonably warm temperatures contributed to the disaster. The accident has since become a staple of local culture, not only for the damage the flood brought, but also for the sweet smell that filled the North End for decades after the disaster. According to journalist Edwards Park, the smell of molasses remained for decades a distinctive and unmistakable atmosphere of Boston. On January the 15th, 2019, for the 100th anniversary of the event, a ceremony was held in remembrance. Ground-penetrating radar was used to identify the exact location of the tank from 1919. The concrete slab base for the tank remains in place approximately 20 inches below the surface of the baseball diamond at Langan Park. Attendees of the ceremony stood in a circle marking the edge of the tank. and The 21 names of those who died in, or as a result of the flood, were read out loud. I'm going to scoot down to um, the see also section to find our next article and um, the one that uh, takes my, well there are two, look there's a Pepsi fruit juice flood and a London beer flood so I think it will definitely be one of those because we're obviously on a a flood tip, tsunami of sugar at the moment. Thank you for listening to this uh, podcast, Um, I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join me again tomorrow hopefully for the next one. Uh, If you want to leave a comment underneath, um, that's always great because um, computers like people commenting. So say anything you like. Um, Maybe suggest something that I should read next. Uh, And I appreciate your company. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.